Welcome to the Ohio Humanities Podcast, where we engage real issues in real conversations with scholars and experts from across the state. In this series, Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters, we explore the topic of civic and electoral participation, using history and jurisprudence to illuminate contemporary issues. This is Ron Bryant. I am your host of Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters. Greetings, everyone. I'm Ron Bryant, and I'll be your host as we explore what it takes to perfect democracy. With me today is Pat Williamson. She's the executive director of Ohio Humanities. This is a new podcast series. We call it Perfecting Democracy. And to consider what we're doing, we're talking about the history of voting and the democratic engagement over the course of uh, the last uh, maybe 50 years or so. From our early history as a state, numerous examples of the promise and betrayal can be found. In 1802, Christopher Malbone, an African-American, voted in a territorial election in Marietta, Ohio. For more than 65 years, we've been looking at the Constitution and protected the rights of the ancestors who have not had a chance to vote in elections. As quickly as women's suffrage was ratified in the nation, Ohio women competed for seats in the state legislature. However, consistent political participation for minority voters as people of color has not always matched these very early victories. Disenfranchised now comes in the form of social media, trolling, bots, intimidation tactics, inadequate polling equipment, and disproportionate representation. Perfecting Democracy will explore these topics through the lenses of jurisprudence and state history. I'd like to introduce to you Mr. David Giffels, who is going to be our resident scholar for the day. Why Mr. Giffels? Well, he has something in common with LeBron James, Chrissy Hind, the Professional Bowlers Association, and Devo. They all originated from the rubber capital of the world, Akron, Ohio. Mr. Giffels, welcome to this podcast. Well, thank you, Ron and Pat, for having me. I really appreciate Ohio Humanities and the work that you do. Now, I just got one question. My understanding is that you played basketball back in the day in Akron against LeBron James, and you slammed on him, and, and you really, you know, put him to shame. Is, is that a true story? Oh, yeah. I'm, I am five foot nine in my, uh, in my high-heeled sneakers, and unfortunately, the video camera that captured that uh, br- disappeared shortly after that event, and so it's, it's lost to history. But Um, I'm sure if you ask Mr. James about that, he will remember it well. David Giffels is becoming one of the really invaluable American reporters and journalists. He has a sharp comedic eye for mid-American idiosyncrasies that recalls Thurber and Keillor. And he also has a political conscience and consciousness that allows him to illuminate with gentle acuity many vexed corners of our national debate. Once again, welcome, Mr. Giffels. I'm uh, a lifelong Akronite and, um, and somebody who has spent my whole life as a writer. And although I didn't set out consciously to make Ohio and this region my theme, um, just by virtue of the work I've done, I was a newspaper journalist at the Akron Beacon Journal for 14 years, uh, most of that time as a columnist. And so and so Akron and Northeast Ohio became my subject. And then all of the six books I've written all have Ohio themes and settings. And so 
you know, I've, I've, I've spent my, basically my life uh, writing and thinking about what it means to be an Ohioan, what it means to be, um, in my case specifically, a member of the first generation uh, to live after the industrial heyday of, of what's now known as the Rust Belt. And so that perspective has kind of uh, influenced everything I've done in my work. Excellent. I'm going to bring in Pat Williamson again. She's the executive director of Ohio Humanities. Pat, I know you are itching to uh, ask a couple quick questions, so why don't you take it from there? David, what is barnstorming? I think there's there's going to be people in our audience who don't remember what that term means. Yeah, I mean, in, uh, in political campaigns, barnstorming is... Um, just going from place to place. It, it originates um, when in the biplane era when, when people would barnstorm, they would fly from farm to farm in these little biplanes. But then it came to, to refer to you know, a campaign just sort of like, especially when they're, when they're really trying to capture a state or a region. So in that sense, that's kind of what this book did. I, I set out for a year to travel around my home state of Ohio with the audacious subtitle to understand America. And and, and I traveled over the course of that year, which which spans from March of 2019 to March of 2020, um, traveled over 4,000 miles, talked to more than 100 people, and, you know, tried to hit sort of every corner or every piece of Ohio that I think reflects or tells the national story. David, what did you hope to learn by talking to these people across the state? Um, one of the things I hope to learn is... I've been aware, as, as I think many Ohioans are, of our unusual status as a really reliable predictor of, of the nation's direction during presidential election seasons. Um, Ohio has voted accurately for the winner of the presidential election 29 of the last 31 elections, going back to the 19th century. We have a perfect track record since 1964. And in fact, of the two we've gotten wrong, one of them was the Dewey defeats Truman year. So we in the Chicago Tribune both missed on that one. But for the most part, we have this, it's not just a knack, but we do have a knack for, for being on the right side of the outcome of every election. But it's, that's a result of kind of our personality as a state, both um, in quantifiable ways, because we have an unusual diversity, political and cultural diversity in Ohio, um, but also because, and this is really what I was setting out to find, I, I think there's a spirit of Americanism that Ohio represents um, that really does kind of act as a mirror and a conscience and a sense of the American direction that is subtle but ever-present. Uh Early in the book, you share the story of your wife getting ready to share a statehood day with her fourth grade class. And that lesson was going to be an opportunity not only to help the kids understand their place within the state. I think the phrase you used is Ohio's Americanism. What did you mean by that? Yeah, my wife is a fourth grade teacher. And uh, so she one of her favorite parts of the school year is, is when she teaches Ohio history. Ohio history, or state history is an educational standard, fourth grade standard around the country. And so the reference that you're making in the book is that the idea that um, these 10 year olds uh, across the country, uh, we, we begin to uh, 
identify a sense of place. And I think that's a, a, a really important part of uh, where we are culturally as Americans because we've become so homogenized and we share so many of the same generic identical experiences. You know, we don't, we don't go to the unique downtown department store anymore. We all go to Amazon or these other platforms that are, that are indistinct from one another. And so the sense of place being reinforced, um, I think is very important because I think our diversity is, is what makes us Americans. And if we lose a sense of our own identity, um, which has very much to do with place, uh, so that we can relate to others on, on sort of platforms that are similar but different, um, I think we lose, we, we're continuing to lose a lot of what that means to be an American, to be um, a, region, or a, a country of regions and a country of immigrants and a country of, um, of divisions that have healed but still have a, a past history. You know, so in our specific household, Ohio history is important because, because I identify very strongly with a sense of place. And my wife reminds me that, you know, we need to give this to the next generation. Some people have called Ohio a swing state or a battleground state. Uh, sometimes we're described as a bellwether state. What does bellwether mean for our listeners? Yeah, a, a, a bellwether is, um, especially when we're talking about it in political terms, it's a place that uh, kind of tells us where we're going. So it's not the leader so much as it is um, something that reflects the general direction of things. And that's a perfect description of Ohio, where this sort of like, to the, to the global point of view, we're this sort of anonymous part of flyover country or whatever. We're not the trendsetters. But again, one of the things that I believed going into this book, and I believe even more strongly now, is that Ohio does, we're sort of like, everything passes through us and we become kind of a reflection of kind of everything that's going on around us. So why is Ohio so good at uh, indicating the outcome of presidential elections? They always say you've got to pass through Ohio. They talk about Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, but Ohio is always in there. Talk about that. Yeah, there's a, there's a quantifiable reason. Um, and this is uh, smarter people than I have defined this. Um, it's, uh, it's something called the five Ohio's. And political scientists, journalists, uh, and other analysts use this template to describe why Ohio is such a reliable indicator. Um, the five Ohio's represent five distinct regions in the state that are each different from the other. They each have different voting patterns. Uh, they each have different cultural personalities. And each of those regions represents some other part of the country in a really strong sort of microcosm way. And so like very briefly, the five regions are Northeast Ohio, where I am right now, Akron, Cleveland, Youngstown, the sort of industrial, post-industrial part of the state that feels kind of, it kind of reflects the influence more of the Eastern United States. The Rust Belt, something like that? The Rust Belt, yeah, the Rust Belt cities, um, strong uh, history of like sort of union Democrat um, and, and reliably Democrat voters, more culturally diverse. Then there's the, uh, the, the Northwest part of the state, which is um, not dominated by big cities, much more dominated by farmland. It's even, it's more flat. 
Um, and it really feels more like the beginning of the true American Midwest. Um, and because it's dominated more by rural communities um, and, and farming, it, it tends to be more uh, conservative and tends to vote more Republican, especially in presidential elections. Yeah. Uh, there's then the, uh, the southwest part of the state, which is uh, anchored by Cincinnati, which feels much more like a southern city. It's more conservative. It's, it's an old city that has a different feel than the northern cities. There's then southeast Ohio, which is the Appalachian region, um, more sparsely populated, uh, a lot of poverty, a lot of places that are forgotten, but also you know, what's been referred to politically as Trump country, more white and less educated than other parts of the state and voters who came out in large unexpected numbers in 2016. There's the center of the state, which is dominated, of course, by Columbus, which is the only growing city, big city in Ohio. Um, it's, it's more white collar, more affluent. It has the very, very strong influence of the Ohio State University and, um, and is also um, has a, a very strong influence of the wealthy suburbs that, that are ringed around that part of the state. And each of those regions, as I said before, they have their own unique voting patterns. They, have their, they tend to have their own self-contained media centers. And so even the information that people within those regions receive is different from the others. And so, you, so when you look at it, that, that pie, the pieces of that pie can sort of be extrapolated outward to show what the national vote looks like, which is why even as Ohio continues to start to lean a little bit more red politically, it still has gone in the direction. We, we go to Democrats when, the, when Barack Obama was elected, Ohio voted blue. When, when Donald Trump was elected, Ohio voted red. And so, we, that's, so as far as the swing state goes, I think that status still applies. We can also say we're kind of purple too. Very much so, but we can if you take it all together and throw it in a blender. But then if you, but, but Ohio's ingredients, and this, this is one thing I really like about the way we've maintained our diversity is that it's, it's very red in some parts, it's very blue in some parts. If I, there was a poll that came out in August um, that was, that the, the graph for the poll, the graphic for the poll was the state of Ohio and where the blue votes were and where the red votes were. And there was this strong blue diagonal line through the middle of the state that went kind of from Cleveland through Columbus into Cincinnati. Very interesting. Pat? Well, I we want to follow up a little bit on this. I've been noticing in the news media, political pundits have stopped referring to Ohio as a swing state or a battleground state. And, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about why that might be, David. I do. And, you know, as, as a lifelong uh, proud Ohioan, I'm a little offended because I <laughs> do still, I, you know, it's funny to be proud of being a battleground, but if you live in Ohio, you're used to not being noticed by the national pundits for three years out of every four. So when they pay attention to us, I want to make sure they get it right. Ohio in this election season before the conventions, um, Joe Biden had a big lead, or significantly. After the conventions, Donald Trump took a significant lead. And I think it got kind of frozen in people's minds that it looked like Trump had it wrapped up. We're speaking two weeks before the election, and uh, it's, it's a statistical bit heat, but Trump tends to be leading by a couple of points, um, which is within the margin of error. 
But I think uh, it's, we're so used to anal expert analytics around this time that that 2% means that it's kind of over and so that we're not a battleground, but every vote still counts for one thing, um, that, that we are still in play. And for another, I think the reason Ohio remains should be considered a battleground is we still have 18 electoral votes. We're still a big prize. And I think the fact that Joe Biden is spending so much money on advertising in Ohio um, as we draw close to the election tells me that it is a battleground or he wouldn't be fighting so hard to take it. One of the sections of the book that I enjoyed, and, and I enjoyed it on various levels, not least of which the way you described Tim Ryan's announcement that he was going to run for president, I felt as though I was there at the rally with you. Listening to the music, you gave us the great playlist, which is a motif that occurs frequently in your books. I was really struck by the quote from Representative Ryan's announcement that it's time for the flyover states. The flyover states need to start governing this country. It reminded me a little of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's 1932 speech about the forgotten man. And in that speech, of course, we, we remember that speech because he's announcing the New Deal for the forgotten man. He also said that in 1932, it was time for the power brokers to put their faith in the forgotten man at the bottom of the economic pyramid, that men and women had been working all their lives, they'd been doing the right things, they'd, they'd been trying to build up economic security for their families, the depression comes along. So Roosevelt was calling on civic leaders to remember the people that built the economy of the United States. I wondered in comparing those two and thinking about some of the stories you tell in the book, do you think Ohioans are feeling forgotten? Obviously not. It's an election year. The press is all over us. But in those three years in between elections, do we feel as though we're being neglected? Yeah. And in fact, that emerged as a major theme in my research and then in Barnstorming Ohio is this growing notion of not only not being listened to, but when we are listened to, it's because somebody wants something from us. And um, um, I, I need to publicly thank Tim Ryan uh, for uh, throwing his hat into the ring because you know, when I set off to write this book in, in, in March of 2019 to cover this uh, for a year leading to the presidential election, I didn't know, I knew some of the things that I was after, but I didn't know what things would happen that year. And so it was a, it, it was a great benefit to me to have an Ohioan declare for the, uh, for candidacy so that I could cover his campaign. And Tim Ryan kind of stepped right up and threw his hat into the ring right at the beginning of my research. But even more, I'm joking about that, but I'm very thankful to have gotten to know him better because, um, because I knew Tim Ryan, the politician, but I really got to see the insight that he's gained from a lifetime living in the Mahoning Valley as the son of a steel worker, as the cousin of somebody who lost his job in the steel plant and had to remove his machine from the shop floor for somebody else to do his job. And for Tim Ryan to passionately express just what you said. We are the forgotten people. That was his message. We are the flyover country. We're the people whose voices need to be heard and aren't being heard anymore. And it wasn't lip service because when Tim Ryan got, if you remember how crowded the debate floors were during the primaries, it was the most 
Democratic primary candidates in history, and he's one of two dozen. He told the story of being on that, on that debate stage. And so he's not just saying we're the forgotten people, the people not being listened to. He was one of them on, on that stage. But also when he gave his, in the first debate, when he gave his closing statement, it was filled with passion. And, and I believe that this was not stage passion, that this was the passion of all his years in the Mahoning Valley when he said, we are the forgotten people. We are, and, and he invoked, you know, like, like restaurant servers in Arizona and, and nurses and, you know, these, these people who, it's not just Ohio, it's most Americans. I think especially with the overwhelming amount of media and social media and people being turned into sound bites that very few of us feel like we have a real voice anymore. And I feel like Tim Ryan really embodied that. You're listening to Perfecting Democracy. I want to take a little shift a little bit and talk about voting real quick. Are we anywhere close to virtual voting? I'm conflicted on that because I appreciate the, the convenience of absentee voting. And I think we ought, because we do so many things online, and we ought to feel like that's the direction we're going. I entertain that idea. But I also go back to my experience as a newspaper columnist. And there was one year when um, and in Akron, in Summit County, there was, it closed down uh, a big box hardware store in the middle of Akron. And the county turned that into a voting place where anybody from any precincts could come and vote early. And it caught on very quickly. And I went out and covered it. So this is, this is not election day. This is, um, I think it was a couple of weeks at least before the election. And I went there and I was immediately struck and almost overwhelmed by this sense of democracy. This, because it wasn't, again, by precinct, anyone from anywhere in, in the city could come there and vote. And so it was people from all walks of life, from all parts of the city, from all parts of the experience of being in Ohio. And it was encouraging to me to see that. I, I remember in my mind, this is what democracy is supposed to look like. So part of me, it's not an old fashioned thing. Part of me is we don't have very many public civic forums left. We don't have very many gathering places. We don't have town squares. So much is happening. So much of, of online culture is taking away from that, that I would be afraid that if voting went that way too, we would become more and more narrowed and more and more divided by extension. So if we were to go to online voting, I would hope that there would be some sort of civic impulse to try to be drawing us back together into places where we are mixing together with people that we wouldn't normally mix with. We have a few more questions as we begin to wind down. We're speaking with David Giffels. This is Perfecting Democracy with Ohio Humanities. Real issues and real conversations here. The coronavirus, COVID-19, the pandemic is ever present. All the disruptions that has caused Governor DeWine has done a fairly good job in response to Ohio has been a bellwether for the nation. What are your thoughts about how we've handled that as it relates to the election and voting? 
So in a broader sense, as it relates to how is Ohio still a bellwether, um, which was my question for that whole year, you know, the book ends just as the pandemic is beginning. And, um, and just as the rest of the country, if you remember back in March and April, um, around the country, people were saying that Ohio is doing this right. And, uh, and if you remember, Governor DeWine and Dr. Amy Acton, the public health director, were working very closely in tandem. Well, I, I don't, it wasn't by accident that they were getting it right. If this goes back to the, the sort of bellwether notion, part of the reason I think Ohio serves as, as a bellwether is because we've gone through a lot of hard times. And somebody who's gone through hard times has lessons to give. So the reason that this public health crisis happens and everybody around the world is scrambling to adapt to it, well, Ohio has been going through a public health crisis called the opioid epidemic. Absolutely. A long time. And, and Governor DeWine and, and before him, Governor Kasich did a very good job of learning how to bring together various resources that don't usually work together in the medical community, in the social services community, in government, and just with citizens, and to address that with a multi-pronged approach, and to listen very closely to science and medical science. So when this happens, he and Amy Acton, who he chose to be the leader for this other public health crisis, they knew what to do and they trusted each other. And that's why I think our response was so strong at the beginning. Another thing that happened at the beginning of the pandemic is massive job loss. Well, if you want to know how to deal with massive job loss, come to Youngstown or come to Akron or come to Cleveland. Yeah, about it. yeah. Dealing with, you know, for, for two generations with, you know, this job loss that has led to us being called the Rust Belt. And so, and so on. So Ohio has sort of been knocked down and gotten up and been knocked down and gotten up like a lot of other places, but in ways that have lessons to teach. So as we go toward the election and, you know, elections aren't just about the next four years, they're about the direction of the country. And if we have been through sort of a couple of generations of evolution through certain kinds of things that the rest of the country is going through now, I think Ohio serves as a useful example of, you know, what's the long view of that direction so that I'm not just using my vote to make a short-term reaction to things that are happening in the past few months, but hopefully a long-term reaction to who can, can take us you know, to the next decade and beyond. Pat? It's interesting to listen to you talk about the election is not about four years. It's about the direction. It's about the next generation. Barnstorming Ohio brings us a lot of hard luck stories. Maybe hard luck is not the right phrase, but stories of perseverance. Ohioans persevere. Right now, things are looking pretty bleak. Um, we've got record unemployment. The opioid crisis has not been solved. Uh, the pandemic is, I don't think it's going to be solved anytime soon. But there are a few stories in the book that are a little bit more upbeat at the same time tinged with a little bit of worry. And, and here I'm thinking specifically about the narrative thread about, about your adult children and the challenges they're facing, particularly your son, who's decided to become a, a cop. Tough time to be a cop. Tough time. Is, is there a hint of optimism? Can, can we see 
light beginning to form at, at, at the horizon? Yeah, um, let me tell you briefly about both my children because they do, they do go directly to that part of my thinking about this and also how I'm writing about this. So my son, um, from the time he graduated high school, he wanted to go into public safety. His goal was to become a firefighter paramedic. And in fact, when he moved out of the house for the first time to go to college, my wife and I went to visit him and I saw um, tapes to the wall above his bed a little note that just said goals and it had this list of goals and it was like, you know, high score on Madden and reach a bench press max. And, um, but in the middle, it said save a life. And it was this just <clears throat> of idealism that anybody who wants to become a firefighter paramedic might think. And I don't think he ever intended for me to see it, but I thought that's, that's, that's the hope I have for my child, that that would be his goal in life. Well, he became a part-time firefighter the first thing that happened was he found that he was responding to opioid overdoses multiple times on a single shift. And so it was almost an ironic mockery of that idealism that he was saving more than one life a day and it became part of his routine. And then he, um, in his evolution through the public safety, into his public safety career, which is still at its beginning, uh, he applied for the Akron police test and uh, on the day that the book opens, he he begins his uh, his time in the Akron Police Academy, becomes a rookie white Akron police officer in an urban area um, in a year that explodes with with tension, uh, racial tension between the police and our, our cities. And so through his eyes, I experienced that first year. I should say that since the book ended, he has now um, proceeded in his career. He's now a uh, a uh, firefighter paramedic for the city of Cuyahoga Falls. He's just begun that part of his, his journey. My daughter very quickly um, uh, turned 18 just in time to vote in the 2016 election, meaning she was a young woman voting in this historic moment where be choosing between the first mainstream female candidate for president and what I refer to in the book as the most openly misogynistic candidate for president. It's like rocket fuel to her burgeoning sense of, of civic engagement and feminism. Um, and so it, her, her thinking in that way, you know, sort of like advanced very quickly and is continuing to do so. So those two stories kind of thread their way through the book. And in one way, it's the most personal part of the book. But now I think it's the most political part of the book because I've reached an age where I don't think, I, I, I think I think more generationally because, um, because I do have children who are just becoming adults. And so when I vote, it's not for my immediate future, it's for their long-term future. And I think it's a healthy way, like I said before, to think about what your vote is. It's not like, how are we going to fix these things that are wrong right now? It's how is this going to be a better place for the next generation? And so they sort of drew that forward from me, and I hope into the book. And I think they drew that sense of optimism because both of their early senses of optimism and American idealism have been tested very strongly, you know, Again, my son, white police officer in in very sort of um, charged racial times, had to think about things that I never had to think about when I was in my early twenties. 
my daughter, you know, casts her first vote in this very like sort of charged and challenging moment. My first presidential vote didn't have that same intensity. So they're thinking more, I think, than I thought at their age. And I hope that their thought is leading to a better future. I think this is a good place to end, don't you, Pat? I think so. Let me ask one more question. Don't ask me who's going to win the election. I'm not going to ask you who's going to win the election. I, you know, first of all, we, we have to behave ourselves and, and not engage in, in partisan discussions. But two, I don't believe that anybody has the power to see what the future, whether immediate or long-term future is going to bring us. Wrote to you about this earlier today. I don't want to give any spoilers for the end of the book, which is, is brilliant. The, the metaphors at the end of the book are, are just wonderful. What's the big takeaway? What do, you, what do you want readers to gain from, from looking at Barnstorming Ohio? The guiding principle of what I was doing was that I wanted to allow people to speak for themselves. I said earlier that I think we're, we're feeling more and more voiceless as individuals as um, the era that we're living in goes on. And so I made it very clear to everybody that I spent time with for this book that I wanted them to speak only for themselves, only as individuals. I didn't want them to think that I was a pollster or somebody looking to use them as a political type or anything like that. I really wanted real people to speak for themselves. And so the takeaway from the book is, I, I, I wouldn't claim that, as the subtitle says, I wouldn't claim that I came away to, with an understanding of America, but I will say that I believe I came away with an understanding of Americans. and that we ought to let those voices stand for themselves um, and not try to make them stand for something more or less than they are. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks to you and Ron both and to Ohio Humanities for, for this and for all of the work that you do. Thank you. You've been tuned into Protecting Democracy with Ohio Humanities, Mr. David Giffels. And Barnstorming Ohio is the name of his book. Someone wants to get your book, tell them how they can get it. Uh, well, it's available wherever you buy your books. Uh, if you want to support one of Ohio's independent booksellers, I won't stop you from doing so. Um, I have a website, uh, it's davidgiffles.com, and all the information about the book and links to where to buy it are available there as well. Real issues, real conversations. This has been Ohio Humanities. I'm Ron Bryant. And for Pat Williamson, we want to thank you for tuning in. See you next time. Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters has been made possible by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, which is being administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Ohio Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. To hear additional stories in this series, visit www.ohiohumanities.org.